Hey, have you heard about popcultureclassroom.org? Pop Culture Classroom inspires a love of learning, increases literacy, celebrates diversity, and builds community through the tools of popular culture and the power of self-expression. That sounds awesome. Pop Culture Classroom envisions individuals transformed by the educational power of pop culture who create diverse, inclusive, and engaged communities, and they bring us Denver Pop Culture Comic Con. So... That's why you get these panels, these guests, these interviews, all of this programming that we offer through the BAC network. Other things that Pop Culture Classroom gives a shit about, quality service to kids and communities, respect, inclusiveness, and diversity, equality of opportunity, alternative approaches to education, recognizing each person's intrinsic dignity and importance, that's always good, and open communication, responsibility, and honesty. Does it sound like I'm reading that off their website? It's because I am. I want to get it right, because they deserve to get it right, and they deserve to have you go to their webpage, popcultureclassroom.org, and donate so that they can keep on trucking with their awesome mission to change the world through pop culture and literacy and education and etc. Three years ago, we're now 53. Isn't that amazing? 
Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek. But this phenomenon was created by all of you. Your, the fans that supported the show, wrote letters to save the show, uh, continued to uh, support the show in every form, and particularly in the reruns. You know, we lasted only three seasons because our ratings were not what we <coughs> wanted them to be. But after we were canceled, the syndicators decided to put us on five nights a week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, five days. And that's when we found the audience and the ratings soared. And that's what made it possible for us to come back ten years later. We were canceled in 69, and in 1979, we came back as a major feature motion picture directed by Robert Wise, Star Trek, the motion picture. And this is because all of you, the fans, I mean, the show is created by Gene Roddenberry, the vision that he had, the, 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 this utopian world that he said was a starship enterprise, this huge starship, which was a metaphor for starship Earth. And he felt that the strength of the starship lay in its diversity, coming together and working in concert as a team, united and a powerful team. And that idea connected with all of you, the fans, certainly the original fans, but then the interesting phenomenon with the fans is you keep multiplying yourselves like triplets. <laughs> generation after generation after generation. I, I just signed uh, an autograph for someone that was a third generation Star Trek family. And then there are some that have uh, the fourth generation that they're carrying around like that. And the amazing thing is they're only a few years old and they already automatically go like this. <laughs> So it was you fans that created this phenomenon of Star Trek's longevity. We have lived long and prospered in so many wonderful ways. So many fans, so many people that have supported us so devotedly. And we're very grateful to all of you for this incredible gift. And this gift has also individually given us other blessings. For example, although my voice is hoarse now from talking all morning and <clears throat> eating quickly and coming here, you have amplified my voice, not only this microphone, but I have access to television mics and uh, television uh, uh, news cameras. I can go out and speak out on issues that I feel very strongly about. And this is what you gave to me. Thank you so much for this gift, which I take as a responsibility as well. And so I have been using it actively and speaking out on various issues. 
I was involved in the civil rights movement as a, a youngster, as a teenager in, in my 20s. I was involved in the peace movement during the Vietnam War. And in the late 70s, when a movement began to get an apology and redress for the unconstitutional, unjust imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II. I was a child, five years old, when uh, the Soviets came to order us out of our home. So I, uh, I talked to the Commission on the impact that the internment had on me as a child. I must say that my real memories of our imprisonment, we were, in, we were taken from Los Angeles, transported two-thirds of the way across the country to, to, the, to a black water prison camp in the swamps of Arkansas. I was five years old then. I was categorized as an enemy alien at five years old. We had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor, and yet, because of these faces, all Japanese Americans on the West Coast, 120,000 of us, were summarily rounded up with no charges, no trial, no due process in the most unconstitutional way and imprisoned in 10 barbed wire prison camps in some of the most desolate places in the country. We were sent to the swamps of Arkansas. But for this Southern Californian kid, it was a wonderful, great adventure. I mean, new discoveries. They, uh, they told me about, my parents told me about these uh, skinny snakes that swim around in the water, and they're poisonous. They're called water medicines, and they can bite you and put poison in your body. So we stayed away from them. But in the bayou waters, there were also these little tiny black fish wiggling around. And I'd catch them with my hand and put them in a jar with the, the uh, crip water, and watch them suddenly grow legs fish that roll legs. Amazing. And then they lost their tails. And magically, they turned into frogs. <laughs> what a discovery. And these are the memories that I have. Fond memories of uh, kind of a Huck Finn adventure uh, as a child behind American barbed wire fences. And so I've been speaking out on that. Um, uh, I testified at the Congressional Commission, and more than 40 years after we were in prison, the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, formally on behalf of the government, apologized for that unjust imprisonment. This, to me, was because my father told me that when I was a child, uh, or as a teenager, I became very curious about our imprisonment. And we had many, many long uh, and sometimes heated after dinner conversations about our imprisonment. And he said 
that our democracy is a people's democracy. And it can be as great as a people can be, but it's also as fallible as human beings are. The people have done great things. The very founding of this country with those noble ideals, all men are created equal. One man, one vote. A due process. When you're arrested, you have a right to know why. Then you have a right to challenge it in a court of law. And then you're either punished or uh, you're uh, set free. In our case, we had none of that. The soldiers just came and imprisoned us. And so that's an example of where we can do great things. A great country confident of itself and aware of its true noble heritage can apologize when they make a mistake. But we have acknowledged that we have made many mistakes throughout the history of the United States. This endless, circular repetition of mistake after mistake. When the country, right before the country was founded, it began. The Native Americans were slaughtered. Africans were brought over on slave ships and used as chattel. And then the struggle of the Civil Rights Movement. So we have this history. And then the Japanese Americans, people who had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor, loyal Americans were imprisoned. We must put a stop to it. And that's why I've been an activist for equality and justice, whatever the issue. I'm gay. And when in my 20s I discovered gay bars, they became sanctuaries because I was closeted. And it is a very constraining, tight closet that one lives in when you live like that. And the place where I was able to put my guard down and, and relax and enjoy myself was in the gay bar with a bottle of beer and good company where I could, I could speak freely. But then one of the older guys told me that even in a gay bar, we had to be careful because they would arrest you and march you out for not having been doing anything, uh, any damage or any wrongdoing. And they would go to onto a paddy wagon, take you to the police station, and photograph you and put your name down on the list. That was terrifying to people who were closeted. They could lose their jobs their careers, their families in some cases. And I stopped to think, this is just like when I was a child in prison because we looked like the people that bombed from Harvard. Here are all these people in a bar relaxing with friends, enjoying a bottle of beer and companionship. And that's criminalized. That's not right. It's just like when we were in prison because we were of Japanese ancestry. But then with the harassment of gay people, it is different because we look different from the rest of America. 
My ancestors, my grandparents, came from Japan. We were at war with Germany and with Italy as well. But Italian Americans and German Americans looked like the rest of America. So we who looked different were rounded up and imprisoned. That was wrong. And it was wrong also to imprison gay people just because they're gay. That same sweeping attitude. But in the case of LGBT people, they're not really visually different. They look like the rest of America. And even more, LGBT people are literally members of the family. We're sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. We're blood kin, and yet this phobia against people who are LGBT, who are attracted to people of their own sex. It was really the most irrational kind of thing. And some families who go against the most natural love, a love of a parent for their child, and the child's love for their parents, they go against that and hold a dogma higher than the most natural love parent to child. Some children have been kicked out of families, which is grotesquely cruel. And that had been happening. I think we're making progress now. We're doing better, moving forward. But we tend to repeat the same mistake. We're going back. And so that's why activism is so important. This year, I have a one-two punch of my activism. Uh, on July 16th, I have a graphic novel coming out, which is based on my childhood imprisonment. It's titled, They Called Us Anyway. But it's a graphic novel told, the story being told in pictures and from the eyes of a five-year-old boy. And so that makes the uh, uh, entry into the story that much more uh, easy to do. And then we later get into the adult experience of my parents. It's called They Called Us Enemy and it's uh, going to be published on July 16. However, you can pre-order on Amazon. <laughs> Just go to Amazon and pre-order. They call this enemy, and you will be the first ones on your blog to get a copy of the book. The next month after that, in August, August 12th, I have a mini-series coming out. Yes, it is a <laughs> It's called The Terror Infamy. And it is a 10-episode miniseries on the internment of Japanese Americans. So I'm relentless. I'm coming at you in book form and in a, a, a television miniseries.
for the last five months, we've been in uh, Vancouver filming this series. And this is a, land, a landmark event, a groundbreaking uh, event, because the story of the internment has been done in a few movies and a few television episodes. But this is the first time of this scope where in 10 episodes, 10 hours, over a 10 week period, we tell the story from the beginning, before Pearl Harbor, during Pearl Harbor, then the impact on the Japanese American community, and we tell the story in the, uh, with the central uh, drama, uh, a love story, between a young Japanese American man and a young Mexican American girl who fall in love. And she goes with her beloved into the camp, and what happens to them in camp, and then a year into internment, the government comes down with a loyalty questionnaire. Can you imagine? After they impoverish, impoverish you and imprison you, they demand loyalty. One of the questions that was most offensive to my uh, parents, my mother was at, uh, on the loyalty questionnaire. The question uh, that was most controversial, question 27, asked, will you bear arms to defend the United States of America? To my mother, she was being asked to abandon her children. My baby sister was, she went in as an infant, and she was barely a toddler. I was by that time six years old, my brother was five years old. She was being asked to abandon us and bear arms to defend the nation that's imprisoning her family. It was preposterous. The following question, question 28, was one sentence with two conflicting ideas. It asked, will you swear your loyalty to the United States of America and forswear your loyalty to the Emperor of Japan? We're Americans. We never even thought of a loyalty to the Emperor, much less pledge uh, our loyalty to him. And for the government to presume that we had an inborn racial loyalty was insulting. If you answered no, meaning I don't have a loyalty to the Emperor for swear, that no applied to the first part of the very same sentence. If you answered yes, meaning I do swear my loyalty to the United States, that yes meant you have been loyal to the Emperor, and now we're prepared to forswear and re-swear your loyalty to the United States. It was crazy. And so this is the story I tell from a five-year-old's uh, kid's eyes at, uh, in uh, the Economist Enemy. And in uh, Terror Infamy, I tell this story from the beginning all the way to when we're released. And the release part, when we're free, was probably the most harrowing part for us kids because the hostility was still there. The uh, barbed wire fence that combined us also was protection from the rednecks. And now we were exposed to that. So uh, watch the terror infamy starting August 12th. And the month before that, you'll be reading uh, or, or enjoying that, this comic book, uh, the graphic novel, uh, they call us enemy.
So now that I've got the commercial over, <laughs> um, they said they had mics uh, uh, set up. Oh, one over there? Yeah, four. Okay, so raise your hands, the mic's making itself visible, and the, uh, the people with the mic will get to you. And let's begin the conversation. Rosenberry. And 
And so when I walked into the bungalow, that uh, number that I was given, uh, there was a woman sitting there at the reception desk, and uh, there, she had a, had a name tag there. Uh, some of you may recognize the name, D.C. Fontana. You recognize? She was the head of the uh, writing team for Star Trek, the TV series. <clears throat> and uh, she was the receptionist then, and she said, uh, I, I said, George to came to see Mr. Rosenberg. And she said, no, the name is uh, Roddenberry. I got so nervous. Here, I was going to this interview for a pilot for a, a, something that's so big, it could be a steady employment thing. And I was getting the producer's name wrong, so I, I started to tremble a little bit while waiting. And it's torturous waiting in the waiting room for the call, but it finally came. And uh, I walked in, and there's this man seated behind the, this big desk. I was fully expecting a battery of people, uh, network people, uh, advertising agencies, uh, some of the uh, other people with the studio because it's a pilot film. But it was just Gene sitting there. And he came out from behind the desk, gave me a great big uh, handshake, and uh, he said, uh, so, you're uh, George Takai, are you? <laughs> That's a mispronunciation of my last name. <laughs> T-A-K-E-I. Many people take the E-I to be pronounced like in the German, uh, Einstein, Eisenhower, away. No. It's the Mediterranean vowel. Those of you who speak uh, Spanish or Italian or Greek, you know that the E is pronounced E and I is pronounced E, Takei. So I told him that was a mispronunciation of uh, my name, and I explained to him the proper pronunciation. And uh, I told him uh, I had mispronounced his name as well. So we had to think back about that. <laughs> and I told him that you have just uh, used a Japanese word in calling me Takai. And he said, oh my goodness, I hope it wasn't something offensive. And I said, oh no, no. Takai is the Japanese word for expensive. <laughs> Oh, you're applauding that. <laughs> I'm expensive. Well, Gene Roddenberry said, oh my goodness, a producer doesn't like to call an actor expensive. <laughs> so I told him, my name is Takei, which doesn't mean cheap either. <laughs> so that was my first meeting with uh, Gene Roddenberry. And I consider Gene Roddenberry to be a very intelligent, perceptive man with excellent taste and high standards, because he has me. Enterprise is new, bigger, and better. 
And the one that interested me the most is the one where Sulu would have been captain. Could you tell us a little bit more about what was going on with the proposal stages and then what you would have liked to have seen had there been a Captain Sulu show? Well, um, after we were canceled, um, you know, we're all professional actors, so we uh, went our way and tried to find new gigs to, do, uh, <coughs> to uh, work on. And uh, so uh, the, the original team was all broken up. However, when uh, in syndication our ratings soared, Paramount decided, well, maybe there's some life in Star Trek. So they started planning a television series return for Star Trek. And the first date they got was February of 1974, when uh, they said they might get started on filming a new series. But as we got closer to it, yeah, and this was in 1972, I think, that we first got that word. But as we got closer to 1974, they started pushing it back to uh, 1975, and then 1976. And so we all had, thought, it's not going to happen. It's, you know, they're getting cold feet. But then in 1977, Star Wars was released, and it exploded at the box office. And so the uh, ugly head of Reed rose up in the Paramount's <laughs> executive headquarters. They said, we have a sci-fi project too. Maybe if we turn it into a feature film, we can get that kind of box office. And that's how the uh, decision came to do a feature film for our return, <clears throat> which turned out to be uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Now, you said that you talked about the uh, Captain Sulu uh, idea. Well, at long last, with the sixth uh, Star Trek movie, um, I got my own command. <laughs> I had been... You know, I'm an activist, and over the years, even uh, during our television series, I was lobbying for uh, promotions for, well, all of the, the ca uh, cast members, not just myself, because, you know, Starfleet is supposed to be an egalitarian organization, and there should be promotions, and so they, we kept getting new advances in title. I was a lieutenant commander, and then I became a commander, and yet I was still tied to that Dan Thompson saying, I am a or three. <laughs> what do these titles need? And so I kept lobbying, you know, we should get uh, new duties, new, new uh, uh, challenges to do uh, as a member of uh, uh, Starfleet uh, officers, getting, getting promotions. And nothing happened over the years, even with the motion pictures. And so finally, I had given up by Star Trek V. And then they, talked, uh, they said, we're going to do the Star Trek VI movie, and I just waited for the script. When the script came, I opened the page, and on the front page it said, there's a brand new captain in a, on a brand new starship called the Excelsior. 
and seated in that captain seat, that power seat in the center of that circuit of, uh, of formation, was a brand new young dynamic captain, Captain Sue, confidently sitting his cup of green tea. <laughs> And I hadn't lifted a finger to, uh, to lobby for that uh, movie. And there I was from the beginning. And as I read the script, I realized this is a Captain Sue movie. And I looked at the script and it was subtitled The Undiscovered Country. But I said, no, no, no. Look at the script, beginning, middle, and end. How does it begin at the beginning? Yes. There's Captain Sulu at the end of the captain's seat, and all hell breaks loose. Praxis explodes, and the uh, current, the waves, which, doesn't, which don't exist in the uh, space, hits <laughs> the Excelsior, and we're all shook up. And I say, shields, shields, and the pounding drama begins. That's, that's the beginning. And then, in the middle, when uh, that aging captain of the Enterprise <laughs> is in real trouble, and the Klingons are about to blast the Enterprise and the captain to smithereens, out of the darkened galaxy sky comes this dynamic new captain of the ship, the Excelsior, the Captain Sulu. Explosion and Sulu says, Target that explosion and fire! And it blasts the Klingons to smithereens, thus saving the day and the life of Captain Kirk. <laughs> and now, the classic ending of all Star Trek movies and television shows on the bridge of the Enterprise. But this time, a grateful and humble Captain Kirk <laughs> gets up from his seat and looks at the giant image of Captain Sue. <laughs> and in essence, he says, Thank you for saving my ass. <laughs> And Sulu looks down and says, good to see you in action one more time. <laughs> and, uh, and blasts off. And there's uh, absolutely awestruck, uh, awestruck, awestruck uh, uh, McCoy. And she says, my God, that's a big ship. <laughs> But Scotty says with a twinkle in his eyes, I, but not so big as I'm a captain, I think. <laughs> That's the Captain Sulu movie, right? <laughs> so that's uh, the story of Captain Kirk and Captain Sulu. <laughs> And that's when the campaign began for a new TV series called The Excelsior with Captain Sue. And the fans were fantastic. 
But the um, decision makers up at NBC and CBS and uh, uh, all the other uh, decision making bodies are deaf and blind. <laughs> but you folks are not. And you are the dynamos that grant wonderful gifts to those of us involved with Star Trek. So thank you very much for that support you've given us for all of these many years, 53 years. Give yourselves a great big If you like this, check out some of our other shows like Exotic Liability, No Applause, Just the Clap, and Black Falls. We can be found at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for The BACN on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Oh, yeah.